I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we say, hey, the reality of that book, we're trying to recover from it by giving you our version of that reality. And if you don't want to hear our version of what a book has to say, you just go straight to the book. It's called a primary source for a reason. Go get it, baby. But if you want to hear us yammer, well, you've come to the right place. Yakety yak. Speaking of yammering, if you want to hear us live chit-chatting, we are coming to Chicago, Minneapolis, Nashville, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Denver, and San Francisco really fucking soon, okay? We are starting this tour the day Claire gets back from her honeymoon, so that's how excited we are to get to you. We said, Buffer, no thank you. Buffer, I hardly know her. And for those of you who have been wondering, our live shows are not just live versions of the podcast. They are games, stand up. We talk to you. We give you all the hot gossip we have recently. We will update you on everything. And whatever we say there lives and dies there. We never repeat stuff. We have gossip that I think we gave one of the Toronto shows, but not the other Toronto shows. We're insane. (laughs) This is a one night only exclusive. It keeps all of the fun and the banter and the rip roaring laughs of the podcast. But none of the us having to read a book. We also do break down a mini essay. We try to make it an essay from someone that came from your town. Not every state has produced a literate celebrity, however. Anyway, we also have our Very Smart Worm and Y2K tanks restocked. You can still get some Ugliest Girl in the World Attack merch. And there will be fresh new fall merch headed your way very soon. Yay! And then Ashley... If you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir about last week, what would the chapter be called? It would be called, did you see that? Because I did. What'd you see? Anything. I have gone through the fucking gates of hell to try to figure out how to see without putting glasses on. I went to go get contacts. I got contacts that bothered me so much. I thought I was just dying at all times. I like wore them because I liked seeing and I just had never really tried it before. And it was so cool. But then I went back and I said, please, there has to be another way. And they said, oh, maybe different contacts. But then there was a whole to do and it took forever to get them. And I like kind of put up a fight because I was like, stop making me pay for more stuff. (laughs) You've made me pay for a lot of stuff. And now I have contacts that don't bother me and I can see stuff pretty good. And it's crazy. I love that for you. What do I look like? Um, You look like a pigeon. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. In a good way. Nature's dove. (laughs) Perfect. Claire, Mm -hmm. if you were to write a book about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? I said, Burr, it's cold in here. Here would be my new refrigerator. Oh my God. I finally got a refrigerator. It is life changing. I don't know if you guys have entered the modern age where we are refrigerating food, but boy, does it keep things preserved in a way that does not get chunky. It is so cool, literally and figuratively. Me and Mac are cooking now. We've cooked dinner every night this week. That's so crazy. And by that, I mean, on Monday, I made salmon. And then on Tuesday, he made cutlets. And it turned out, actually, that the recipe he followed for cutlets was two pounds. And I tease him, but I also would not have known that. Did you know that two pounds of cutlets is actually like 17 cutlets? No. Yeah, well, that's how much we made. So when I say we've been cooking dinner every night this week, I mean, once Mac made cutlets for the month. And now we have cutlets for lunch, breakfast, and dinner. I had a cutlet on top of pasta last night. Mac has a cutlet and egg sandwich every morning. We are eating good cutlets. And they're maintained. And they're chilled and you can and it's perfectly salmonella free and FDA approved. And the only problem is, for those of you who have been keeping score at home, it did take four attempts to deliver this fridge. 
We have not had a fridge since we moved into the new place in April. It is mid-August. <laughs> and the last step of the equation is it turns out on the four different attempts I had to get the new fridge installed, I forgot to click and take away the old one. So we do still have the old fridge in the middle of the kitchen, but he's a friend. Do you know what I mean? What's another week? He's leaving tomorrow. They should come get him. Knowing my experiences with Best Buy, though, it could be another couple months before we figure out exactly what needs to be done to get that fridge out of there. But we're trucking and we're full of cutlets. And you know what they say? A tummy full of cutlets is a happy tummy. If you can't get the fridge out of there by the time you have the rehearsal dinner at your place, I wonder if we could decorate it like an altar. If we could make it full of flowers. Yes. You know how sometimes they do that thing where they'll fill like a bathtub with flowers? Caroline Calloway. Yeah, but the bathtub is like in the front yard. We could do that, but with refrigerators. I wonder if you could put koi fish in there. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of class, a memoirist who never went to class. Let's talk about Recovering from Reality by Alexis Haynes Nae Nyers. You knew her as Alexis Nyers. And if you're saying that doesn't ring any bells, does Emma Watson ring a bell? Because Emma Watson played her in the infamous movie, The Bling Ring. Maybe you saw her on Pretty Wild. Maybe you've seen her in the meme where she said, Nancy Jo Sales, it's Alexis Nyers. And I'm calling to say that I did not wear six-inch Louboutins. I was wearing little baby heels. <laughs> the meme heard around the world. One of the most famous calls in the universe. I do think that her and Alec Baldwin are up there on two most famous voicemails of all time. And they are opposite ends of the like chaotic, neutral, chaotic evil spectrum. <laughs> Okay, so Alexis Nyers, Alexis Haynes. It's hard to call her Alexis Haynes because I would not have bought a book from Alexis Haynes. I bought a book from Alexis Nyers. You know? Can I say something? The name Alexis Haynes, though, if somebody said, oh, you know Alexis Haynes, you'd go, mm, no, but I'm sure I've seen her in something. Alexis Haynes is an Orange County housewife name. I don't know if they won Big Brother, if they got kicked off of Survivor, but in an infamous way. I don't know what reality TV show they were in, but Alexis Haynes is a reality star. Like we said, she was quite famous for having a reality show on E! called Pretty Wild with her sister, her mom, and her best friend slash like foster sister in a way. And then she also was a part of the Bling Ring, a group of kids who stole a bunch of shit from celebrities' homes in the 2000s. Orlando Bloom's house was hit. Rachel Bilson's house was hit. Paris Hilton's house. Anyway, so they robbed a bunch of houses and then they got caught and then she went to jail for a little bit. But she was arrested the day after they started filming Pretty Wild. Yeah, which made for stressful TV. I remember being like, I can't believe they didn't get a second season. I just have this vivid memory of them being in the studio with Ryan Cabrera. I mean, who hasn't been in the studio with Ryan Cabrera? He's here right now. Bring him (laughs) out. (laughs) Okay, you guys. Before we go any further, the silliness ends here. The buck stops now. This is like such a serious book and I want a trigger warning for everything. Yeah. Except for eating disorders. Yeah, but definitely lots of drug use, lots of sexual assaults and abuse. As an adult and as a child. Family abuse. So if those things bother you, if you hate that stuff, maybe hang it up. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry for laughing, but I do want to trigger warn those things. Okay, so Alexis was born June 20th, 1991. She's currently 32 years old. This book came out in 2019. She wrote it when she was 28. So the book opens with her at her podcast interviewing Dan Levy. Is Dan Levy the guy from Schitt's Creek? No, there's actually two big Hollywood Dan Levies and then like one at every synagogue across the country. 
I was so confused. I was like, I can't believe he also had this whole life 10 years ago exploiting women. So she sits him down to talk about what happened with the Pretty Wild reality show. He was the producer. And he, within two minutes, is yelling at her saying, you lied about everything. He catches me off guard, making me pause for a second. Of course, he's right. In fact, Dan wanted to do a reality show about me and my best friend Tess because of those lies. Can I say, yes, she did lie about a lot to get a reality show, it seems. And she was lying about a lot in her day-to-day life because that is the life of an addict for the most part. But the way that he, a grown man, is mad at a 17 and a half year old girl for getting one over on him, bitch, blame yourself. No, I mean, the thing she lied about 100% should have been caught by any adult with a baseline conscious. If you are an adult man producing a television show and an 18 year old heroin addict bests you, you lose. Especially because she was a 17 year old heroin addict who lied about being in her 20s and being sober. Those are not hard things to figure out. I don't understand how they could have not caught her on her age lie. I think the TV show knew how old she was. I think people in the world didn't know how old she was, like when she would go to clubs. Okay, but they knew what was going on was wrong. Yeah. We were two wild party girls pretending to be fraternal twins and Hollywood socialites doing drugs and hanging out with celebrities across Los Angeles. We were super fun and also completely out of control. The whole point of Pretty Wild was that the world wanted to watch the train wreck that was our lives. We embodied the pain and upside down value system of a traumatized society, one that is in rapid decline. And then she jumps to when she was charged with robbing Orlando Bloom's home as a part of the now notorious bling ring. Nine months later, I accepted a plea deal, which sent me to jail. And a few months after getting out of jail, I was arrested again for violating my probation. I was 19 years old. I'd been shooting heroin and smoking Oxy for almost five years. I'd been molested, raped, abused, jailed, and I was on the verge of an overdose too many times to count. And then, of course, how did we get here? She says, whether you know me from the podcast or my Instagram or that voicemail from a broken girl, we're all part of the same tribe. We're all here to heal. So let's do it. Let's recover from reality together. I had no idea what she was like. Me neither. I thought recovering from reality was like recovering from like how hard it is to be on reality TV. Yeah, like the bad press of being famously arrested. I didn't know she was like one of the most traumatized people there ever was. What I think is especially heartbreaking is the lies that her mom forced her to perpetrate in an attempt to exploit her were the lies of the image that kept people from ever showing her compassion. Yeah. So let's get going. So who did raise her? My mom raised me to believe in fates and fairies and a bunch of woo-woo shit that now fills multiple accounts on Instagram. So our parents met because her mom moved to LA to become an actress. She did Playboy for South America. She had bit roles and tried to model. And she landed a walk-on role and ended up dating the director of photography who would go on to be their father. I will say she says a lot throughout this book that her mom is a very woo-woo, alternative, spiritual lady. I would not classify any of the actions of her mom there. No, she's not a healed person, but she's someone who will try something new. Right. But what I want to say is it is very interesting to me that like her mom identifies as someone who's very spiritual. But she's like deeply out of touch with herself and ungrounded. When she's like out of touch with herself, ungrounded and projects the most toxic shit I've ever heard of onto her family. Yeah. We were born in the shadows of Hollywood. If you don't know anything about Hollywood, it's the place where everyone is chasing something and very few catch it. We were born in Calabasas and grew up a stone's throw away in Westlake Village. You guys may know Calabasas as where the Kardashians and Drake made famous. Hollywood is all about getting high. It's all about the huge dopamine hit you get when you land a part or sign a deal. 
It's all about getting those phone calls that will change your life. They say there's no such thing as a bad meeting in Hollywood. Everyone is blowing sunshine up everyone else's ass, and maybe especially when they have no intention of delivering anything. My dad chased booze and women and drugs. My mom chased spirituality and fame. She even acknowledges it sounds like a weird combo. And I'm like, yeah, that is a weird combo because they are completely at odds with each other. When things didn't work out for my mom, she turned her attentions to Gabby and me. I'll say right now, it isn't easy to tell these truths about my mom or my dad for that matter. And she does talk about the Gen X ideal of we did the best we could with what we had. And she says that is actually not true. When TV stardom didn't work out for you and now you had a family to raise, you could have gone back to school. You could have tried to get a job. Instead, her parents both just kind of ran around and like left them to their own devices. My mom could have gone back to school. She could have gone to therapy. She could have made better choices. And my dad, he could have gotten sober. He could have grown up and been responsible, caring adult we needed him to be. Gabby and I deserved a lot more than what we got. Gabby is her sister. Back in 1995, when my father was getting remarried and my mother was smoking pot 24-7, nobody was paying much attention to the two little girls in the middle. So Gabby and I just learned to survive. And we saw that if you wanted to survive as a girl in America, you'd better look cute doing it. We took dance lessons and practiced being pretty. We were constantly told to act like little ladies. So she is terrible in school. And I will say one thing I've seen about a lot of kids who are terrible in school, there are a couple factors at play. One, who's making them try in school? Like some kids are just not good at focusing on the way America does school, like sitting in chairs for hours at a time. But also it's hard to force yourself to sit down and focus when no one cares if you do or not. No kid wants to sit in a room for eight hours a day. So if you say, well, then don't, then they won't. And so she drops out of school at like 14. I was five years old when my mom met another mom who liked to smoke pot. Tracy was a stunning woman with long painted nails. She had a big tattoo of an angel on her stomach. She used to joke that she wanted to slap a nipple on a bottle of vodka and go to sleep. Her daughter was Tess and Tess and Alexis became best friends and the two moms became best friends. My mom and Tracy would spend hours in our garage smoking pot and doing crafts, making jewelry and hair clips, thinking they were these model mothers when in reality they were teenagers play acting as adults. It's ironic that Tess and I would come to star on a show called Pretty Wild because we had been pretty and wild since we were kids. We were feral. From the start, it felt like Tess and I attracted the same attention that I watched my mother receive. People noticed us when we walked into restaurants or stores. Women complimented, they're so pretty. Men commented, they're so pretty. I could feel the difference. On our own, we might have gotten some attention, but together it was double trouble. My mom also saw it, enrolling us in dance classes, convinced we'd be child stars. And then it seems like Tess's life completely blows up. It seems like her mom disappears completely. I don't know who was looking out for Tess, but it was so bad that Alexis's house actually became the saving grace, and Tess mostly lived with Alexis's family. Yeah. So their dad is fairly MIA. They don't spend a lot of time with him, and when they do, he is so wasted. And they're afraid to spend time with him because he's always drunk driving. And even as little kids, they're like, we know that that's bad. Something happens when you don't have any men you can trust in your life. Something about partnerships, love, and faith gets thoroughly shaken. It was the early 2000s and Tess, Gabby, and I watched Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and Shakira and believed that if we just learned to shake our hips right, we wouldn't have to worry about how to pay the bills. At first, my dad paid alimony and child support. But by the time I was 11, he had already ruined the marriage he left my mom for with another woman that they actually loved and they are still friends with to this day. And at some point, he becomes homeless. He becomes so addicted to alcohol that he loses his job and he is living on the streets that at one point lives in their mother's garage. Yeah. So the mom becomes destined to rewrite the script of her life. She had been waiting for Prince Charming to come save us. And then she realized she had something even more powerful in her grasp. 
She had three princesses just waiting for their tiaras. So she realizes early on that living adjacent to Los Angeles and having three beautiful girls in her care could be financially beneficial. And she also teaches them never admit that you're poor. She refuses to sign up for food stamps even though they're starving. And when she borrows a mini BT card from the father, she makes Gabby and Alexis go in and do all the grocery shopping for the family because she will not be associated with it. So they are constantly pretending that they have more money than they do rewrapping gifts under the Christmas tree. And she says that is so much part of the trauma of it was that they were taught to lie about who they were constantly. So she started getting sexually assaulted very early on. And it happened very consistently, I would say, until she was married at the age of 21. She talks about getting sexually assaulted for the first time when she was five. By a relative in the family, a teenage cousin who had her alone at a wedding. And then again, later at a family reunion. And she says she actually blocked a lot of these memories out. And it wasn't until she got sober in her 20s that they started to come back to her. And family actually questioned her about it. At one point, her mom accused her of lying. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have accused her of lying. She actually went to a lot of people who either said, you're lying or we just don't want to talk about it. Now sober, I would be in a hotel room and the smells would suddenly start triggering a very visceral reaction. I would feel like my whole body was in shock that something terrible had just happened and it had about 20 years before. She has become a huge advocate for women. And I think one of the things that was so hard is the way that she had a chiropractor at one point say like, where does all your trauma come from? And when she tells him this story, he goes, I just don't believe it. A woman last week had a similar story. I don't believe that there's all these men out there doing all these awful things. We as a culture have blocked the reality of childhood sexual abuse. And then we pretend that all the horrible things in the world from rape to mass shootings to addiction, aren't connected to it. The shame that is born from the abuse affects us all. It's like a ripple effect in the darkness of our world. And she's like, so much of our ills in society is like these hurt people hurting people, and we like will not acknowledge it. I actually was just reading something today about how in the U.S. there's this real crisis of fear about like strangers kidnapping suburban children and sex trafficking them when the majority, when the majority of child abuse comes from somebody they know in their lives or family members. And like why the American psyche just cannot wrap their minds around that. Like it infuriates them if you say that, that like statistically it's like a coach or a cousin or somebody in your life who's more likely to hurt your child than just like a stranger in a Target parking lot. We're seeing that all the time on TikTok. Constantly people are like, if you see a piece of paper floating in the wind, that means you've been marked for sex trafficking. That's not what it is. Sometimes it's even other children. Like we see this with Jessica Simpson and we're about to see it with Alexis Nyers. A lot of times it's children who have also been abused. Yeah, who haven't been helped and they know what they're doing is wrong, but they've been taught this behavior. Because entire generations have failed to bring sexual abuse into the light, shame has grown in the secrets and become part of the shadow aspect of our society. Our parents were molested, their parents were molested, and we end up being molested. No one is supposed to say anything because, God forbid, we have to look at our culture and see how we got there in the first place. She says, where in our culture are children revered and protected and cherished? Unfortunately, our society would rather live in sickness and secrets and pretend that everything is fine. I grew up pretending and I was almost dead by the time I was 20. Once she remembered it, she realized that the cousin who did this to her has two little girls now of his own that he lives with. And so she calls the police to report it. And she's like, I know it's beyond the statute of limitations, but I'm worried because he's around children all the time. The police say sometimes that's just how kids play together. And then she gets, you know, told that she isn't believed by a chiropractor. We never fully get to the other side of this kind of trauma. We recover, but as I sit here right now writing down these memories, I still get stomach cramps. It's not easy. It's hard work. It's a choice to do this work, and it's a decision to be present and to be willing to look at the whole big, beautiful, ugly, scary, amazing picture. 
Maybe it isn't for everyone to find a place where we find compassion for ourselves first and then for others. She talks about how because of all of this abuse, it leads to more abuse. Like once you are raised in this situation, it's so hard to like learn that your body has value and deserves to be protected. So then she talks about how when her mom met her dad, her mom's life kind of took a turn for the worse. She came to Hollywood with all these dreams and these hopes. And instead, she had these two kids with this alcoholic who cheated on her all the time and then left her for another woman and drugs and alcohol. Instead of seeing her own dreams realized, she turned her attentions to Gabby and me. We were both physically attractive children. And now when I look at my own children, I realize what a blessing and a curse that is. Beauty might help you become more popular to get attention for boys, to get out of trouble, but it also comes with a certain burden. It means that people always judge you first. Your beauty becomes a commodity, something that other people can buy and sell. This was like in the era of Lindsay Lohan and Dina Lohan. And she says my mom was like a low-rent Dina Lohan who would just shove me in front of any camera. And she talks about her dad being drunk and acting like he wasn't and them all acting like they were kids so they didn't understand. And she has this heartbreaking line. When you're 10 years old, you can see, smell, and feel the difference between a beer at dinner and a drunk dad. I mean, we read so many people's memoirs who had alcoholic parents who are like, they don't think I knew. Or we read it from the alcoholic parent themselves. They'll be like, but I always kept it out of my children. My children never had any idea what was going on. They know. And he really had a problem. They would go out to dinner and then he would get in the car and drive them around. And at 10 years old, she was aware that they could die. And she would try to quietly call her mom from the back seat because she would be so scared. And once her dad heard her, turn around, hit her, and then threw the phone out the window as he was like swerving down the lanes. And she said she would go home and cry and beg her mom to not let them go over there anymore. And it wasn't until when she was 12 and she came home with a black eye one weekend that her mom finally was like, who did this to you? And she goes, it was my dad. And then they never spoke again. For years, they didn't speak. And she's like, I could tell that my mom was pissed that her one weekend off a month or whatever she had lost. Yeah. So she says, like, I could tell my mom just didn't want to believe it because the one benefit of being a single mom and having a dad with partial custody is that you get weekends off. And so she's like, my mom loved those weekends. And she just didn't want to admit that there was a problem because then she couldn't have those weekends. My mom wanted the best for me. She loved me with a mother's love. She didn't want me to be hurt and abused. But like my dad, she was a lone wolf, a loving wolf. She wanted to love me, and yet she wanted her life too. She refused to accept any truth that didn't fit into the picture she had of us. The problem with being a parent to yourself, let alone to your biological parents, is that you never get to be a child. I felt like I was responsible for everyone and their emotions, my father's drinking, my mother's freedom, my sister's safety, and none of them wanted my help. My mother wanted everything on her terms. My dad was the same. My little sister believed I was the problem. She thought I should shut up and stay in line, that my dad hitting me must have been my fault. People are always so surprised that I'm only 28. They think I must be so much older. It's because I've been an adult since I was a kid. And so then her mom just gets married to a guy, I think when she's 12 years old. Yeah, and it's around this time that her dad becomes homeless because his addiction gets so bad. Yeah. This is after his third wife. Her mom had been bringing home boyfriends for years and they would always accept them and be like, you're our new dad. We really need an actual dad around. And they would always disappear. And so then they just kind of gave up. And then this new guy just shows up and the mom marries him immediately. And they were like, well, that's not what we meant. Yeah. She's like, okay, you don't want to meet my boyfriend's fine. And then after six months of dating this guy, Jerry, she's like, this is Jerry. We're getting married next week. And they're like, okay, there must be a middle ground. She had convinced Jerry that their father paid child support. So Jerry would not have to take any financial responsibility for the children. But of course, the mother had no money. The father was homeless. So I don't know. She doesn't really get into what the repercussion of Jerry finding that out was. But couldn't have been great. Yeah. Being abused only increases your chances of being further victimized later in life. I had no idea what my body was for. People in my life 
contributed to my exploitation in many different ways, either actively or through negligence. So her parents didn't care. They didn't care for them. They didn't watch them. I grew up believing that these sexual ideas came from me, that I was the bad one. I was the girl with the scarlet letter. The truth is I was just a little girl who needed people to take care of me. And instead, I was treated like a little adult. So I became one. So she's then sexually abused by babysitters, female babysitters. She had a teenage babysitter that watched her that like fully molested her. She said she had this weird experience with her, her dad at one point and had this wife that was also addicted to opioids and would just sit in bed all day drinking. And she would just have the girls come to the bed and play with her boobs. She's like, it's crazy what people will say this is assault and this isn't. But she's like, it was all assault. It was all like sexual exploitation and nobody treated me like a child. Mm-hmm. She says that a couple of years ago, she took a test for adverse childhood experiences, which measures the 10 biggest traumatic events that you can go through in life. And your ACE score measures your risk of becoming an addict and predicts whether you will have mental health issues later on in life and whether or not you will like die, basically. And she got a nine out of 10. Trauma is like a volcano. It simmers below during childhood and then it just erupts, blowing up into bad behaviors and dangerous choices. I started acting out sexually, trying to figure out who I was. By the time I was 14, I started smoking pot with my mom. By the time I was 15, I was addicted to a number of substances. The trauma ran like lava through my life, burning anything that was good and true in its path. I learned that to score drugs without any money, I had to use the only gift I believed I had been given, my looks. I didn't realize that with every encounter, every violent boyfriend, every blowjob traded for a little bag of dope, I was only re-traumatizing myself. I was disconnecting myself further from the little girl who learned at the age of five that her body wasn't hers and it never would be. The shame became so deep that it didn't feel like I had any choice but to embrace it, to believe that abuse was power. So her and Tess start doing hard drugs by the time she's 15 years old. At 14, she had already dropped out of high school. She just didn't want to go. And her mom was like, oh, yeah, I'll sign a little form saying I homeschool you. And they would just stay home and smoke pot. She says when you're a teenager has never been taught a single coping skill, there's only one way through the pain, and that is escape. And she also says, so like Tess came from a family that was even more fucked up than Alexis's, if you can believe it. And it was almost like they were this toxic duo who pushed each other further. And every anger they had at the world, they were always like fighting or best friends or totally obsessed or Tess had a boyfriend and was ignoring her or Tess and the boyfriend broke up and she was desperate to have Alexis back help her. And she said their friendship was this obsession that just dragged her to the bottom. So then when she's 14 years old, she also broke her foot. And this led to a Vicodin prescription and, like we know, can happen with a Vicodin prescription, an opioid addiction. And this is when she stopped going to the school. Yeah. And then she and Tess start smoking Oxy. I didn't know what Oxy was, but Tess and Kevin were doing it and I was so obsessed with being cool. The last thing I was going to do was look like a loser in front of my best friend and my boyfriend. I was 14 and within a matter of months, I had become a dropout and a drug addict. In our family system, we had all taken on our roles. I was the scapegoat, Gabby was the forgotten child, and Tess was the troublemaker. I went where Tess went, and Gabby followed us both. Unfortunately, I also took the blame. She mentions a few times that she was caught holding the bag. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, and so this is some foreshadowing for, you know, when she obviously goes to jail. So she only tells her story from the bling ring here. She does not get into her sister's. She does not get into Tess's. And I would say the omission when you find out what actually happened is so large that it, like, it doesn't put her on lying, but you're like, oh, okay, she's so good at omitting their story that you almost think they don't have a story to tell, but they were all involved in the bling ring and only Alexis went to jail. So on the Patreon this week, we are going to do a deep dive on what actually happened with the bling ring. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll try. So we're going to watch the documentary. Yeah, we'll watch the documentary. We'll read all the articles. And we'll watch the documentary and the Sofia Coppola documentary <laughs> starring Emma Watson. 
I am constantly doing closet cleanouts. I always feel like it's just overflowing in there, but I never actually have anything to wear. I've really been trying to hone down my closet into the perfect capsule wardrobe of high quality basics and Quince has been an absolute godsend. I've been able to build a perfect capsule wardrobe with iconic pieces that can be styled for any occasion. Fancy, casual, the bar, the dog walk, no matter where I go, there is just an item that I'm so excited to put on. Quince creates timeless classics that never go out of style. You'll have them in your closet forever and they will last. It makes putting an outfit together so much easier. They have all of the capsule wardrobe must-haves, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters from $50, suede and leather jackets, silk blouses and dresses, and all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories and they're able to cut out the cost of the middleman and pass the savings straight to you. Quince also only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. The sweaters from Quince are so soft and lovely and just the perfect fit, something that you're so excited to throw on and you feel fashionable, but like every day I just threw this on and I happen to look so good. They also have incredible silk items. I'm so excited to get a nice silk top from them. It's my favorite thing to throw on and be like, I happen to be perfectly ready for a night on the town and I put absolutely no effort in. Just kidding. I planned this outfit for weeks in advance. And Quince makes bedding, homewares. You know I'm an absolute bedding lover. I think good bedding is just the number one thing you can do to treat yourself every single night. Take the drama out of planning an outfit and upgrade your closet with Quince today. Go to quince.com slash worm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash worm and get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash worm. I think I became hardwired to take responsibility because it felt like no one else around me would. I think that's an important line to remember for the Patreon this week. Mm-hmm. Everyone else shrugged off their roles and duties. They blamed someone else or they lived in denial. When shit hit the fan, everyone else ran while I found myself holding the bag. And she says that once they had tried Oxy, their only goal was more drugs. My mom didn't seem to notice our newfound passion for getting and using Oxy. The thing is, now that Tess was back, my mom was once again focused on making us stars. The Kardashians had just come out with their TV show. And since we lived Calabasas adjacent, my mom figured we could be doing the same thing. So the mom is trying to momager them. It didn't seem to matter that Tess and I were getting fucked up the whole time. My mom was convinced that she could finally turn our double trouble into a paycheck. And that is what was important. And this is where the sexual exploitation by her own mother really starts. She had us taking pole dancing classes. And before you knew it, we were posing topless in front of weird photographers we met on the website Model Mayhem. Every girl I know thought she could be a model on Model Mayhem, myself included. And now I look (laughs) back and that was actually a sex trafficking site. Jesus. So they start booking some stuff. They get music video shoots. They do a music video with Marilyn Manson. We had been booked for a Marilyn Manson video shoot and we came to party. They just spent all night just wearing slutty outfits and doing drugs with rock stars. And then they got paid. But they're like 16, 17 at this point. They're literally underage, but they're lying and telling everyone they're in their 20s. Yeah. We weren't the poor kids in a rich neighborhood anymore. We were the stars. I mean, they weren't. I guess when you're 16 and you're getting male attention from someone famous, it makes you feel like a star. Yeah, so Tess starts dating a rock star that does not get named, but is obviously a really big rock star because Sean Penn is always at his house. They said we'll call him John. He lived in Malibu. He would have these parties with Cindy Crawford, members of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, Tess was quite literally 17 and addicted to heroin and dating someone famous and old. 
Alexis meets Sean Penn and they start texting. And when the police take her phone because of the bling ring arrest, she's like, but I am texting Sean Penn with that phone. Years later, I had a counselor who told me, you know, most people would never even try heroin, right? I was shocked to hear this. But even during those years, I was beginning to get the sense that the way Tess and I partied was different. It wasn't just the drugs we did, which eventually included heroin. It was the way we did them. Other people would go home and sleep it off. But Tess and I always needed more, more, more. We needed drugs to function, to feel able to connect, to participate. I mean, she talks about one night being at a party at this rock star's house and she's out of drugs. And so she tells Tess that she has to go re-up. And so she's high driving her car through the hills. She pulls over for the drug dealer to meet her and somebody puts a gun in the window of her car and she just freaks out and drives away with the gun stuck in the window. And after calming down and panicking, she calls her drug dealer and just is like, I'll meet you at your house. And she's like, it didn't even occur to me until just now that the guy robbing me could have been the drug dealer. Was probably the drug dealer. Because who else would have driven randomly up into that parking spot in the hills? But yeah, then she still gets high. They're always finding these disgusting groups of rich guys who will buy them clothes and buy them drugs, who are always just assaulting them in their blacked out state. We don't even question it. We're in so many unsafe circumstances with dangerous people. Our abilities and inhibitions low. We don't even believe ourselves when we say no. She tells a story about going on a date with Neil Brennan, who she acts like they were in love and had a relationship, but they just went on this one date. But still, Neil Brennan, that was a 17-year-old, and he was like the co-writer of The Chappelle Show. He was a smart, nice, normal guy, and he thought I was 21. I was totally in love with him. Can I say the excuse of he thought I was 21 is still not that old. For Neil Brennan, like a super successful man in his 30s to be like, I thought she was 21 is not the excuse. That's still too young. Anyway, after one day, Tess like steals his identity, racks up a bill, and Alexis is doing drugs the entire time and then makes him drive her home. And then she like falls asleep randomly and he's like, I think this is too much. And on the way home, he's like, what is wrong with you? You need to fix yourself. And it's like, what is wrong with you, Neil? Why are you dating a teenager? Instead, I could only call my dealer. At this point, Tess and I were living double lives. We would go to auditions, getting parts in music videos and small movies. And then later on the same day, we would be out on the streets panhandling for drugs. One minute, we'd be in the VIP section at the Mondrian, Mondrian, Mondrian. And two hours later, we'd be cruising through Skid Row trying to score. Tess was now 19, which made everything feel a little bit more legitimate, even though I was still 18. My mom knew something was wrong with us, but we kept ending up in the right place at the right time. What was she going to say? That I had a curfew? I think that if you think that your daughter is out on the streets panhandling for money to do hard drugs at best and then doing sexual favors to get drugs at worst. Yeah, set a cur- I don't know, figure something the fuck out. It's so sad. But she's still obsessed with using them for money. She still sees them as their golden ticket, so she's putting them up for auditions and stuff, and they do get roles. They're getting bit pieces here and there, so they get in this movie called Frat Party, and that's where they meet Dan Levy, who is an actor and a comedian, thinks they're hilarious, and is like, I'm going to produce your TV show. My mom believed that we had a message to share and that fame would give us the avenue for that message. This is what I can't fucking deal with is pinning the woo-woo stuff to be like, my mom was just trying to have us share our message out there. Your message is that you were a neglected child addicted to heroin. Yeah, like what was this message that she needed such a large audience to deliver? They shot a sizzle reel and there was a bidding war between A&E and E for the TV show. For so long, our lives had been about what we didn't have. We didn't have a dad. We didn't have enough money. We didn't have peace in our home. Now it looked like that lack might finally be changing. We might have money. And with that, we assumed happiness. I later found out that money can buy comfort, but it offers little guarantee of happiness. Can I say when did she find that out? Because I don't think they were ever like good. Yeah, I don't think she was ever not using all of her money every day to buy drugs. Yeah. So the pilot gets picked up. And around this time, they're like amazing things are on the up and up. 
She goes, I didn't really understand why we were doing the show, but I did know that being famous meant free shit, free booze, free drugs, free clothes. And she's like, it was nice after being so poor. And then at the same time, they become friends with this kid, Nick Prugo, who was Tessa's friend, who was a young gay kid who liked to party like we did. He lived at home with his parents, but told everyone he was a stylist and he was always giving them free clothes. And she's like, I didn't ask where the clothes came from, because when you're a drug addict, you live by Omerta, which is the code of silence between thieves. So Tess is friends with this guy, Nick. Alexis meets him, becomes kind of friends with him. And Tess had been living with Alexis and her mom and sister. But then they got into a huge fight after shooting the pilot. And because they weren't shooting the series yet, Tess moves out and moves in with Nick. Then Alexis gets into a big fight with her mom and she calls Tess to be like, can I come over here? So she goes over to Nick's house and Tess had just like left to go to her boyfriend's house. So Alexis is hanging out with Nick and Nick is like, we're going to go to a party with my friends. And she's like, fuck yeah. She's high out of her mind. She goes to this party and gets drunk out of her mind. And then Nick is like, we're going to go somewhere else. Do you want to come? So here's the truth. I've served my time. I have nothing to hide. This isn't an attempt to minimize or downplay what happened. But my role wasn't portrayed accurately in the media, and it's my turn to share my truth. For once in my life, the truth is a lot more boring than fiction. I wasn't really part of the Bling Ring gang. Although Nick was a friend of Tess's, I didn't know him that well. Our relationship started only a few months prior and really just consisted of getting fucked up. So what she says is she was only part of this one thievery. She didn't even know where she was. She was just kind of like saying yes. And when they handed her the trash bag, she was so fucked up and stressed. She was like, yeah, sure, totally. But she never went along with it again. And after that night, she never spoke to that boy, Nick, ever again. Yeah. And she says that a couple months later, she even called the police to say this string of robberies is Nick Prugo and another woman, Rachel. I was a zombie walking through life. I may have gotten the rep of being a criminal mastermind, but I was more like Scooby-Doo. I went along with everyone else because I wanted to be loved. Tess was able to command people's attention. She was the leader and I've been following her for so long that that was all I knew how to do. I followed people until they hurt me too much and then I found someone else to follow. I didn't know how to lead. I followed Nick and Rachel right into that house, not knowing who it belonged to or what we were doing. Okay, so she's high out of her mind. They throw her a bag. They get in the car and they drive off. This is what she says is all that she was a part of. And she says as soon as she got home back to Nick's house, she called her mom was like, I need you to come get me. It's really bad. And she never spoke to them again. Yeah. And like I said, she called the police a couple months later to turn Nick Prugo and Rachel Lee in. Because they finally got a photo of them breaking out of Audrina Patridge's house. And she's like, I know who the two people in the photo are. And she says she doesn't hear anything about it again. She doesn't hear anything from them for months. So she's like, I guess they're not using my information. They start to film pretty wild. They have one day of filming. The next day, she wakes up to a SWAT team swarming her house to arrest her. The thing was, neither my mom nor I thought I would get in trouble for the burglaries. I didn't know what Nick and Rachel were planning to do that night. I was barely there and I left as soon as I could, never participating in another one. How could I even be considered an accessory when I never wanted to be there? That's kind of a stupid line. I really feel for her because the situation is fucked. And if what she's saying is true. And I do low-key believe her. I do believe her because why at this point would she be lying like this? She's gone to jail twice for it. Yeah. She says that first day of filming, the producers wanted to film us partying with the rapper and Mickey Avalon. He was one of the first music acts discovered through MySpace. Mickey was famous for his heroin and crack use. So when the cameras were off, we were partying. We did Xanax and heroin all night, finally arriving home just as the sun was coming up. It's just Mickey Avalon. What a throwback. This is such a throwback. So she wakes up to the SWAT team. And for some reason, her mom doesn't go with her. She doesn't have a lawyer. Nobody says, don't say anything. So she says what happened is the police take her. They take her phone where her and Sean Penn had been texting. (laughs) 
and they tell her it was Orlando Bloom's house. And then later they're like, do you know what house you were in? And she was like, yeah, Orlando Bloom's like thinking it was a test. And they're like, gotcha. Now you're fucked. And that was the evidence they needed to prove that she had been in on it on purpose. Why didn't she know not to fucking speak until you have a lawyer present? If you watch any TV ever, you know that. And she watched a lot of TV. She never went to school. Looking back, it all makes so much more sense. Young and naive and in the middle of filming my reality TV show. And though they didn't drug test me, I'm sure they could see I was fucked up. I was coming down from heroin and Xanax in the interrogation room. I just wanted to go home and crawl back into bed. Who cares about a dumb, young, spoiled drug addict who doesn't give a shit about the world? They certainly didn't. Our society throws away its sick. Only recently, because of the opioid crisis, have some people begun seeing addiction for what it is, a survival mechanism for dealing with pain. But for years, we were stigmatized, driven underground, left to die. As I found out later, Nick had identified me being one of the two figures in the hazy security camera footage they had. They took us to the Van Nuys station for booking, and Rachel ended up in the car ride with me. We couldn't talk. I'm not even sure what we would have said to each other. We were both in our own worlds of mayhem. It was just for one night, but those worlds intersected. So I guess the reason she was brought down was she got named by this guy, Nick, who actually was the leader of it. Yeah. As soon as I got home, I went back to bed. Our show producer, Dan, had already called us. He and the other producer were shocked, but also thrilled by the news. After all, this was good TV. They wanted to refilm me being arrested. So the day after, cops burst into my home, ransacked all my belongings, and led me away in handcuffs. We did it all again, but with actors, lights and cameras rolling. Talk about being re-traumatized. That's crazy. That's so fucked up. Now we had money to pay for my legal problems and I had money to pay for my addictions. And as I was about to find out, both were about to get much, much worse. Here is the thing. Hair thinning happens to approximately one in two women. So if you are among them, you are not alone, not even close. Thinning is normal, but Nutrafol helps women address it from within with science-backed supplements. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve visible thickness and strength. From postpartum to menopause to plant-based lifestyles and no matter your life stage, Nutrafol has four unique formulas to support women. Each is physician formulated using drug-free science-backed ingredients for the most reliable results. Go to Nutrafol.com and take a health and wellness quiz to identify the causes of your thinning hair and Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for better hair growth through their whole body health approach. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. Nutrafol is now also available in a vegan formula. The newest supplement is formulated for women ages 18 and up with plant-based lifestyles who are experiencing signs of hair thinning. I am so happy to have found Nutrafol. I feel like my hair is just thicker and shinier and nicer, and I've been putting it through the ringer. You guys know I get a number of treatments done to my hair on a regular basis. I don't think it's happy with me, but from within, my body is like, well, we're trying to grow the best hair we can. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com promo code WORM. So she talks about filming the show. They were forced to fight to keep the show interesting. The producers would come in with a plan of attack for the day and be like, all right, what's going on in your guys' lives? What can we have a conflict about? And it obviously is so toxic. We learned that from YF. (laughs) When you come in forced to start a fight, boy, do you. It seemed like the closer Tess and I got to success, the sicker our relationship became. And the more famous they got, the more people were throwing them free clothes and free money and free drugs. They were just getting sicker and sicker. 
Not only were we pinning all of our hopes on the show that was slowly poisoning all of us, but as my lawyer explained, I was now facing real jail time. Also, poor Gabby, who was only 15 at this point, was getting sucked into the world and sexualized in the way that Alexis always had and wanted to protect her from. And she regrets that she was too high to continue to protect her. She remembers a topless shoot that Gabby did at 15. And she was like, to watch Gabby go through the same horrors that I went through when I could have stopped it. And I feel so bad because she calls herself a perpetrator of abuse because she says, at this point, I was 18. I was an adult. And I was like pulling Gabby into these situations. I was the traumatized person continuing the cycle of trauma whatever made me fun or interesting in the first place was fading fast all the parts of me that once made Tess and I life of the party the combination of that light that we all have mixed with the survival skills and a solid dash of the magic that happens when the drugs hit those opiate receptors was burning out as my spark dwindled my anger at Tess only increased she was the one who introduced me to Nick yet here I was the one facing jail time not her God, I saw a clip that I sent to Claire of Tess being interviewed by like TMZ or whoever's shoving cameras in your face when you're trying to get into a car after a Hollywood club night. And she has charisma. Yeah, she's very beautiful. She's so beautiful. And the way that she's like 19 or 20 years old at that time, just kind of like handling the line of questioning and like being so cute about it. Yeah. I am like, that's something you're born with. So then Nancy Jo Sales interviews her. They believe Alexis is being wrongfully painted as like the head of this crazy operation, which it seems like she was. Again, we don't have the whole story. We'll watch the documentary this week, but I really don't feel like she would lie here. Yeah, I believe her. When you're on that many drugs all the time, you really can't be pulling off heists that good, I think. Yeah. So Nancy Joe Sales comes to do this Vanity Fair piece on her. But I will say the other thing. The person who's writing this book is someone with eight years of therapy and recovery under their belt and when you watch the clips like from that show and from that time she was obviously out of control and insufferable so like I do feel like Nancy Jo Sales showed up for this interview and was like ugh. but that's what I was saying at the beginning of the episode is I think part of her downfall was this image that she was taught to portray yeah on top of the drug addicted abused teenager who nobody was looking out for and was being exploited by her nearest and dearest caretaker that caretaker was also saying and act rich and act fancy like there is that thing when you're 17 where you kind of think acting obnoxious like that is cute. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And your parents have to be like, stop acting like that. And then you grow up, you look back and you go, Jesus Christ, was I a trip when I was 17? But I think if your own mother is saying, turn that on, pretend to be like, if you're looking at the Kardashians and your mom is saying, we need to become them, act like them so that we don't have to be poor anymore. And you're like looking to the Kardashians as a personality to pretend to be. When someone says, talk about how rich and beautiful you are. You're fucked. You're fucked. And that's our only way out of poverty. And you're 17 and addicted to drugs and probably already a little annoying because most 17-year-olds are annoying. Yeah. So she's 18 here. That's why she's faced prison time. I think that it's an important distinction because I, through other research, found out that Gabby was also robbing stuff. That does not come up in this book. Anywhere in this book. If anything, Gabby is painted as this innocent angel who maybe partied from time to time, but was just like stuck with her horrible older sister who was puking and dope sick and always sneaking into her bed and shivering and in her bed when the SWAT team broke in again. Yeah. So Gabby is painted like the little sister from Euphoria who's just like in the corner hoping for the best while her older sister like overdoses. I do think it's important because Gabby was underaged and I suspect that it's because she maybe has a sealed record and Alexis is trying to like repair a quite damaged relationship and that's why it's written this way. 
So we believe there were injustices committed during the investigation and thought that Sales was there to help us clear up the confusion. That Vanity Fair piece would not only prove my innocence to the world, but to the court. When the piece came out, it was horrifying. She painted me as a fame monster that only cared about partying. So, of course, she calls Nancy Joe and leaves the infamous voice message about her misbranding her shoes. It is different. It is so different. I'm sorry. Wearing Louboutins versus wearing, like, mall shoes is different. And I can't believe that the journalistic standard at Vanity Fair is so low. That is something that you could fact check with your eyeballs real quick. Louboutins, like, famously have red bottoms. Even I know that from that J-Lo song. I know the scene of me reading the article and I rightly calling sales to give her a piece of my mind has launched a million memes and I can finally laugh at it too. But the footage doesn't just show an oblivious entitled girl yelling about BB shoes. It showed a young woman with substance. <laughs> when I first read that, it was a young woman with substance, but no, no, no. <laughs> a young woman with substance use disorder hitting her bottom, screaming into the void. How easy is it to laugh at people when they're down? We all point fingers at the fallen. Sometimes it's well-deserved. Harvey Weinstein, I'm looking at you. Okay. You're not doing yourself any favors by putting yourself in the same sentence as Harvey Weinstein. Of course, being addicted to drugs is not the same as like repeatedly abusing women for decades. But often it's just people going through the worst days of their life while everyone watches. No one has much compassion for you when you're losing your mind. They love you when you're on the other side sharing about how you got it back. But no one loves you when you're in the middle of your shit. And I was in the middle of my shit. I don't have compassion for Harvey Weinstein. I I don't know why she brought up Harvey Weinstein. I think she's trying to be like, some people are bad, but... Yeah. Nobody thought that you were bad like Harvey Weinstein. But I do think this is a really important point to bring up right now as we abuse the shit out of Raquel Levis and then Amber Heard and then Britney Spears and then Monica Lewinsky. The way that we can constantly as a society be in this cycle of apologizing for the woman that we beat the shit out of media wise 10 years earlier and then also have a new woman we hate. Like think about why you're so angry at this person who has done personally nothing to you. Yes. So her lawyer says, you have to take a plea deal, but she didn't want to. She said, I'm not guilty. She says, I refuse to plead guilty because I didn't feel guilty, not fully. I stood there with a trash bag. Sure, I did what they asked me. I threw some stuff in because I was stoned and terrified, but my intentions weren't there. It's not like the intent to rob. It's did you rob? Yeah. And I will say that I don't think she deserved to be the scapegoat for this situation. I think Nick and Rachel went to jail too. But I don't feel like her sitting there being like, but I wasn't like as guilty as they made me seem. I like did it because I was high. I'm like, well, you still did it. And she has a few lines later that I partially agree with and partially disagree with where she talks about how like she is a good person. She was just struggling with drug addiction. And I do believe addiction is a disease. But I also believe that there has to be certain responsibilities for your actions. And I'm not saying I believe in the prison system, abolished prisons. The way she keeps on being like, I was innocent. I was just high. I'm like, well, you weren't innocent. You were also high. And that is something that society should have like a way to take care of people. You know what I mean? Like there should be systems of helping people instead of being like, well, how about jail? Anyway, so they filmed up until the moment she turns herself in. She gets sentenced to six months. And she talks about how awful jail is. She says, Robert Downey Jr. once said something like, you can't go to prison and come out a liberal. I have no idea what he meant because I left with the seeds of the social justice warrior I currently aspire to be planted in me. All I saw in there was how our criminal system was cruel, brutally racist attack on people who had so much less than I do. So justice isn't fair when it only serves a few. And I saw firsthand how unjust our system is, how my molester could be free and how women who were just along for the ride were serving life. Jail was a horrible experience. And after 48 days, she is released. Oh, my gosh. But not after going through heroin withdrawal in jail. She says it's horrible and nobody cares. 
And that's the worst part is the feeling that no matter how bad it is in there, nobody cares about you. And she's puking and there's no showers and she's begging for help and saying I'm sick and nobody gives a shit. And then she gets out after 48 days. She goes to in and out with her family and then she calls a friend and goes to a party. Now, most parents would have said, no way. You just got out of jail. You're coming home for a hot shower and a home cooked meal. But that wasn't my family. It had never been my family. It was cheeseburgers and see you later. I understand that they were also scared. They didn't know what to say or how to comfort me. None of us ever thought I would one day be sentenced to jail for robbery. And she says, like, this is why so many people relapse because they leave and there's just like nowhere for them to go. You're released back to your old friends, the old ways and the old survival mechanisms. And all you know how to do is survive, even if that means a one way ticket back to jail. So she relapses pretty quickly. At first, she was trying to stay her version of sober because her mom kept saying there's going to be a season two. You got to stay healthy for season two. So she was only smoking pot and drinking alcohol. While she was in jail, she had given Tess money to pay for their apartment while she was in jail. And it turns out Tess had like shot up all that money. So they had been evicted. And at this point, Tess has graduated to needles. They used to only smoke and snort drugs, including heroin. But now Tess shoots up heroin. And so she's not talking to Tess. And that's almost for the best because at least she's not doing drugs. But as toxic relationships work, they meet back up. She walks in. She says, if we hang out tonight, do not do heroin around me. And as soon as she walks in, Tess has a needle in her arm. It was like a week before Alexis started shooting up as well. I had stopped going to my probation meetings because I was too fucked up. If they knew I was using, I would be sent back to jail. I failed to put two and two together that not showing up was basically the same as checking in fucked up. I was already a month behind in rent. I knew they'd be kicking me out of my apartment soon. Overwhelmed doesn't begin to describe my state. So first, Tess almost dies of an overdose. She and Tess are doing drugs at a drug dealer's house. The drug dealer is like, you can't call the cops here. Which she also calls out, this is a huge thing with the decriminalization of drugs that needs to happen is because people are dying because they're afraid to call the cops and get help. So she pulls Tess into her car. She ends up coming to in like the side of the road. Someone sees Tess throwing up violently and calls the cops. An ambulance comes, administers Narcan, and she doesn't die. But it was just a really bad experience. And then they start doing more drugs. I'd been out of jail since August and it was now November. In three short months, everything had fallen apart. I couldn't pay any of my bills. I was stealing checks from my mom and cashing them just to pay for my drug habit. I was back to panhandling at gas stations and spending the night with whatever drug dealer would get me high. So then she finally moves back in with her mom at one point and she's like, even though me and my mom are fighting a ton and I was acting horrible to everybody, my mom knew that every morning I woke up alive was a miracle. So she lets me back in and she says, One day I went out with a friend and we ended up shooting dope together. He dropped me off around midnight. I crawled into bed next to Gabby. I was beginning to kick what I knew would be worse when I woke up. I had a little bit of heroin left on me, so I figured I would hang on to it to use in the morning before my drug dealer started taking calls. She was so high that day that she didn't even hear the SWAT team come back in and, of course, arrest her again for breaking probation. She was supposed to be checking in with her probation officer, and she didn't. And, of course, they find the heroin on her, and now she's in huge fucking trouble. She's facing six years in prison. And she does end up getting a chance. So she says to the judge, I can go to prison and keep being a horrible person, but I want to get better. I'm done ruining my life. And the judge sentences her to a year in treatment, which is just such an insane break that she got. I think it was the right call, but I like wish more people got that call. And she has somebody pick her up. This is the miracle of recovery. We meet a stranger and because they too have eaten McDonald's after kicking heroin in jail for two weeks, because they too have lost all hope. Because they, too, have stopped being able to look at themselves in the mirror. We believe them when they say it will get better. I ate that cheeseburger and I smoked that cigarette and it was the best meal of my life. It was the first day of the rest of my life. 
So she goes to rehab and she's not entirely committed to getting sober at this point. She says that she's learned rehab is a window. It's a small glimpse into the outside world. And you basically like have an opportunity to get sober. But if you don't feel like it, you won't. And so she starts doing the work. She starts going to meetings. She starts working the program. And then two months in, she relapses. She does whippets in a car with other people from rehab. And then she realizes that she could go to prison for doing whippets. And she's like, what the fuck? I didn't want to go to prison for whippets. I didn't want to fuck my whole life up. I wanted to actually live because that laughter had done something to me. It gave me a glimpse of hope. And just like that first high from dope, I wanted to chase it. I nearly killed myself so many times over and none of those big dramatic experiences woke me up. That stupid hit of nitrous on March 8th, 2011 rang a bell for me. It wasn't a bang, but a whisper. And I heard it loud and clear. That was the last time I ever used. I was freer than before. It was like being 13 years old again. When I first started using, except now I was on the verge of turning 20. I had no idea who I was or what I was supposed to do. And so now she's 20 years old, sober for the first time, and she has no real experiences to build on. I wish I could tell you that here comes the sun started playing and all my pain disappeared, but I don't think it looks like that for any of us. I'd been using drugs since the age of 14, and now I was being asked to get up every day and go through it sober. That was a hard ask. It was brutal some days. I didn't know how to look at myself in the mirror. I knew I didn't want to be the girl detoxing in jail. But I didn't know how to love the woman I was becoming either. So she asks a guy in a meeting, do you know anyone that could maybe sponsor me? He gives her a number for a woman named Deborah, who still remains very close to her to this day. And that guy that she asked, they got married. When I was about a year sober, Evan and I started to date. <sighs> and she had been dating the whole time that she was in recovery. She says that she'd always had boyfriends and you're not supposed to date for your first year of sobriety. But she didn't do that. But she was dating someone she didn't care about. And as soon as Evan asked her out, she broke up with the other guy and was like, this is the one I want to date. So he asks her out and they go out. And right away, it was like love at first sight. He was smart and funny and had something I never realized was so important, kindness. They had so much fun. They go on this date. I had no idea where our coffee date would lead, but I knew this. Evan was exactly the kind of man I wanted to be with because he was the kind of person I wanted to be. I will say the red flags are waving at me. She says, my superpower was being mature beyond my age, and now it was time for me to show up for it. He would say things like, I'm interested in who you are now. After our second date, he asked to meet my mom, which felt a little crazy, but I also knew that he was 35, and as he explained, he was done fucking around. So she was 20. So she tells us the change before. She's 20 years old, has never been so before. And then she's like, but I'm really mature. And then she's like, and this guy wanted to meet my mom after the second date. One year into sobriety, I find it very suspicious that they tell you don't date anybody for one year. And she's like, luckily on the 366th day. He asked for my number. I don't know if I believe this. And I also want to caveat. I want her to be happy. This book was so traumatic and scary and sad. And she has led such a traumatic life that I don't know the chances of having like a perfectly healthy, nice relationship. Like with who, you know? Yeah. But this this Evan. So anyway, so he meets the mom and she's like, he had no problem with my crazy mom because his mom actually was bipolar and had killed herself. So he's used to kind of kooky families. And then the next day, he calls her and says, we're moving too fast. And she says, that's fine. We can stop dating. But I just need to say this. I think I've fallen in love with you. And then I hung up. And she like gives him credit. She goes, Evan was still a guy. And after rushing headlong into the relationship, he freaked out. No, 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 no. You don't get to be like, oh, but he's still a man. He insisted on meeting your mom on the third date. And now you're like, but he's still a dude. No, fuck off. Why do you guys get so much credit for fucking existing? What an insane thing to do. That is so mean. 
So anyway, so then she sees him on Halloween. She's a date with another guy, but he apologizes, asks if we could try again. I agreed, but don't pull that shit again, I warned him. A few weeks later, we moved in together. Ugh. And then a few weeks after that, he goes back to Canada to renew his visa, and he doesn't get it renewed. So now they're separated for four months, and he calls her and says, will you marry me? I didn't even hesitate. Of course I will. Here's how I know it was a real deal. In every previous relationship, I relied heavily on the intoxicating effects of oxytocin and novelty. And she's like, because we had fallen in love over the phone, I knew it would last forever. And he's like, by the way, this isn't just for the visa. And she's like, I know, this is forever. And I'm like, oh, God, this is rushing really quickly. So they get married in Mexico. And then he goes back to Canada. And it takes a couple months for him to get the visa approved. He comes home. They get pregnant immediately. He does not have a job. She does not have a job. They're living off of the life rights money she got from the Bling Ring movie. Meanwhile, her mom is still trying to thrust her back into the spotlight. My mom felt like I was giving up opportunities by not committing to my modeling and acting career. She felt like the burglaries actually gave me an opportunity to capitalize on the infamy, but I was hiding out in the recovery world, refusing to make public appearances. But I knew that my sobriety had to come first. And if I went back to the clubs in the late nights and my relationship with Tess, I was doomed. I can't believe her mom. I mean, it's insane. But I was becoming very pregnant and just wanted to be with my baby and be with my husband. Plus, beginning at about the two-month mark, I bled through my entire pregnancy. Every day that I kept my baby felt like a miracle. Getting out and selling books and projects and appearances just felt dangerous. I had finally found safety with Evan and my mom was starting to blow it all up. She also was like, it's crazy that my mom was like, you need to be doing all these things and give me 15% as your manager. And she's like, why? What connections do you have? What experience do you have? Stop making me work so you can live off of me. Yeah. She realizes that her working for her mom and her mom managing her gave her mom a reason to not examine herself. So if she's constantly pushing Gabby and Alexis, the mom doesn't have to stop and say, like, what am I doing? You know, Evan stands up for her. She talks so much throughout the parts of this book that she just wanted someone to look out for her, someone to stand up for her, someone who made her feel safe. So this guy comes around one year into sobriety, plucks her out of this recovery program and is like, I'll keep you safe. I'll provide the one thing you've always been looking for, just a reliable person that you can trust. And even though he shakes that trust within the first three dates, she is so desperate for someone that she can trust. She's pregnant with this baby and she's going to give birth. She's decided to do an at-home birth with a midwife because she wants it to be as natural as possible. I understand recovering from drugs I can't imagine how scary it is going into that world headfirst towards everything you've ever avoided. So she decides to stay home. The problem is the baby is born. Frank breached, folded in half with her butt pushing through first. The midwife stated calmly that we need to go to the hospital now. So they get out of the tub after hours and hours of labor and the baby is like in the birthing canal at this point. They drive her to the hospital. They have to call this doctor who's giving a lecture to children to come in because it is an incredibly dangerous thing to give someone a C-section when the baby has already descended. So they have to cut her open. They have to pull the baby out. And luckily, everybody survives and is well. But the midwife starts crying and is like, I'm really sorry. I should have known much earlier that it was breached. Like, that was incredibly dangerous. They both could have died. So another thing that we forgot to say while she was pregnant. So after she tells her mom, like, I don't want you as my manager anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to focus on my sobriety and like my child that's coming into this world and my new marriage. Her mom starts telling all of their family members that she lied about being abused by her cousin. Yeah, she said she had found old correspondences between them, like letters that were pleasant. And she used it to call up everyone in their family and say, Alexis lied about this. She's just trying to break up her family. If he had really assaulted her, why would they be cordial later? Actually, Alexis's sponsor gets on the phone and says, what are you doing right now? Why are you doing this? And her mom kind of snaps out of it. Yeah, and she says now their relationship is rebuilding. But Jesus Christ. So right after she has this baby and this traumatic birth and they have like no money, 
the Bling Ring movie comes out and her mom was like, you need to get out there. This is your moment. She encouraged me one afternoon as I breastfed my newborn baby still healing from my C-section. She says she was hounded by the press, that photos were being put up of her where she was postpartum with PTSD, just like struggling to recover. And people in the comments were just ripping her apart. And she ends up having to move in with her mom because their house is in like a gated condo community. So it's not as easily photographed. But her mom has gone insane trying to prove her innocence in the bling ring situation. She is obsessed with like rehearing the case and getting the case to go back to trial. And Alexis is like, I cannot fight. I've paid my time. I need to move on. And her mom's like, no, we've like have a new thing that the detective was sending suspicious texts to the jury. And she's just like, please, mom, like, let it go. I can't live like this anymore. I have no fight in me. The mom goes so crazy that her husband, who she had married when Alexis was 12 or 13, ends up leaving her. He's like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. So Alexis moves in. Jerry moves out. My mom lost her mind, obviously. And now Evan and I were stuck. Just like with drugs, toxic relationships have to hit a bottom. We have to walk through the dark night of the relationship's soul right up to the breaking point, where we either do it differently or we quit it entirely. We have to be willing to walk away because in that moment, when we're willing to surrender to the relationship, we open the door for healing. So then Vice reaches out to her and is like, do you want to do a column about addiction? They really love to hunt down our memoirists. Yeah. (laughs) So Vice is like, do you want to write a column about addiction and recovery? And so she starts writing and she writes about her mom and her mom freaks out and is like, you can't write about me. You're an exploitive bitch. And Evan, the husband, so I will say, I do think he provided good. I'm just suspicious of his motives. He goes to the mom and is like, oh, she is exploitive? Oh, she is exploiting you? And the mom's like, what about my reputation? He goes, this is what everyone thinks of you. And she says, the craziest thing happened. My mom listened and kind of just sat down and was like, fuck, that's what people think? And now the mom works with families who have children who are suffering from addiction and she helps them place their children in treatment centers and helps the family support the children who are undergoing treatment and recovery. So then they finally, after a year of living with her mom, move into their own place and Alexis starts like really having panic attacks, like having 10 panic attacks a day, regularly having to go to the hospital, can't get out of bed, severely depressed. It's bad. She can't drive. She can barely live. And finally, Evan calls the mom and is like, I don't know what to do with her. So they get her on antidepressants, but that makes it worse. They keep trying different antidepressants and they are all really not going good. So then she starts seeing a holistic doctor and that helps her. That like, I think it gives her a space where she can heal and look at herself and feel like she's working towards something. I don't mean to disparage alternative medicine because I do think it has a time and a place. She is like, it was actually my gut health the whole time. Like, probably not. But I will say, I think that having a doctor where the point is that they listen to you and like work with you one-on-one holistically and not prescribe something for like a problem that they have heard you talk about for 10 seconds is probably the answer. I also do think like mentally feeling you're going to a place where you're tackling a problem that gives your body time to like heal a bit. The balance of her chemicals in her brain seems a bit fucked up at this point. What with all the drugs and not everything. So I'm sure it was helpful to go somewhere calm and breathe and be like, this is actually quantitative help. Yeah. They had also tried to get pregnant again and she had miscarried. But now after a year of alternative medicine, she's feeling better than ever and she is pregnant again. They do a test on the baby, like one of the genetic screening tests, and they find out that she is positive for trisomy 13, also known as Pitau syndrome, which is something that 80% of babies die within the first few hours of being outside of the womb or the first few weeks. So, I mean, it's just a baby cannot survive. 
So they are recommended to terminate the pregnancy and they do like a second round of tests that also say that she's positive for this. And then they decide to undergo a third round of tests that is much more in depth, but they won't have the results back until she's about 21 weeks, which is pushing it to terminate a pregnancy. And it turns out because they waited, it was kind of a false positive. Her like amniotic fluids were positive. Yeah, the placenta had a different DNA than the baby itself. Yeah. It's just very scary and very stressful. I think a lot of the medicine in this chapter should be taken only for her specifically. I think she does a lot in this book of like saying, here's my experience and here's what we can all take from it. I'm very nervous about the implications of this very rare situation. So she has the baby. And again, she has a horrible experience giving birth where she has to have this thing called a vaginal birth after C-section, a VBAC, which means that she needed a C-section, but then they were able, I guess, through the C-section to fix whatever was going wrong so that she could have her vaginally. And she says, delivering her naturally just as I wanted with Harper. Only about 10% of women opt for a VBAC, even though 90% of women are candidates. I was proud of myself. Evan saw me become a warrior priestess. And I kind of like, I know she needs something to feel proud of herself for. And I really think she sees motherhood as her new identity, the thing she can soar at and succeed at. But this way of being like, um, 90% of women have the option to get ripped through their abdomen and then also rip their vagina, but choose only to have one horrible rip, like weak people. I'm like, I don't know. I hate it when women in these books turns how brutal their childbirth experience was into a competition that makes every other woman who had a less brutal experience or like picked the least possible brutal experience as like weak, pathetic women who didn't really have their baby the correct way. I don't know. I can't stand that shit. Yeah. Anyway, I will say like for the most part, again, I do support her. I do want the best for her. I think that there is like some stuff in this book where I'm like, well, it's coming from a place of like, she's traumatized. This is what she knows. This is what she stands. This is what she has. She has this to be proud of. And like, I don't want to take it from her. But I also think she does such a good job in the rest of the book of like taking accountability and being so kind and compassionate and being like, Everyone here was hurt too. Everyone was fighting their own battle. Everyone who's hurt you has probably been hurt themselves. But here she's like, but me, rip me top to toe. I'm the best mom. I'm like, okay. I know. I mean, it is like the classic as you get further along in the book, the less aware it gets because she's had less time with it. Yeah. Now she has two babies and she is having horrible chest pains and she like goes to the doctor and they're like, "Mm, it's probably fine. And then she goes to another doctor and they're like, you're having a pulmonary embolism and you're about to die. And she almost dies, and then she doesn't. And then she was 25 years old with two kids and a lot of trauma. I realized I could either succumb to the grief, as I had been doing my whole life, or choose a different outcome. I wanted to be a warrior. I wanted to be the author of my own story, and then I wanted to help other women to rewrite theirs. I saw that our lives could be so short, and that we could either spend them staring at ourselves in the mirror, waiting for the change, or we could go out and bring the change to ourselves. I also realized that I wanted to help women bring life into the world. So she's actually become a doula. Yeah. And she talks a lot about how she loves the bond of motherhood, how every mother, we might have different skin tones and sexual orientations. We might not agree on politics or religion or anything for that matter, but we have all stayed up through the night holding a sick baby. We have all felt what it was like to hold a child to our chest and experience oneness with the divine. And so she's like, I want to be a champion for all women, whether or not they've had a baby. I don't regret the past, nor do I wish to shut the door on it. Instead, we embrace the superpowers that it brought us to healing, sometimes reluctantly, and we birth new life in the process. We need the heroine's call to action. We walk through the obstacles. We begin again. This chapter felt very self-aware in the moment and me and Claire both had the same qualms about her relationship and the way she like leapt off of shaky ground into a new foundation before she ever really established herself as a sober person. But she says, I've taken a long hard look at how much I rely on my husband and how I can start trusting myself more. Most of all, 
I've had to work on the most important relationship I have, the one with myself. And so she acknowledges her codependent tendencies, the way she like needs to forgive herself and recover. And she says she's really hurt by the movie that I guess Emma Watson came out and said that she had no compassion for the character she was playing. Emma Watson did an interview with Rookie Magazine and told Tavi Gevinson that she watched Pretty Wild so many times that it gave her anxiety. She wondered how anyone could watch it. And she's just like, I don't know. Why can't we like be nicer to people? Why did you have to hate me so much? And she gets into her relationship with Tess. She says that as much as she like loves and supports Tess and her new family, their history might be a little bit too dark to ever like have the relationship she hoped that they could one day have. They have like butted heads in the media up until last year. So we'll get into that on the Patreon as well. I like would love for them to be cool. No, I think they need to stay the fuck away from each other. Honestly, I think they can never see each other again. I think they can never see each other again. What I mean by be cool is like coexist completely separately and not like make swipes at each other publicly. Yeah. So her dad as well, he's sober now. She has a line that I actually really appreciate. Here, Alexis talks about actively forgiving imperfect people and like making the choice to forgive. And so there is not really a resolution. She just says, I've had to accept that I'm never going to get the apology from him that I need. And I'm like, to me, that actually does fills in the blanks that I needed. She also says about her relationship with Gabby is that Gabby is currently going through her own healing journey. And she's like, a lot of the shit she's going through is coming at me. And I don't know that I'm always being so gracious and accepting the blame that she throws at me. And she says, I think me and Gabby just have to accept that we have different visions of our childhood. And she says, Gabby looked back at their childhood and says it wasn't bad. And that all these things that Alexis is claiming, like she doesn't remember and it never happened to her. And she doesn't see it that way. Oof. So Evan and Alexis have a sober living house company they like help other people get sober she's trying really hard to be a mom she says as a mom she goes by her new married name alexis haynes and she enters these like mom groups on facebook and other moms will find out who she is and get her kicked out and she she moves through life so paranoid that her past is going to trap her and people will judge her when she's just trying so hard to do good and change i will say this is something about the exploitation of reality television that i find like very difficult to cope with as a consumer of pop culture Because some of these people, I'm sorry, like the fact that she has been set up for life as this meme and probably got a few thousand dollars from it. Like she made no money to have her reputation dragged forever. That's so exploitive because how much did he make, you know? Also, I think like looking at the Raquel situation from Vanderpump Rules, the way that people are so fucking hateful towards her and maybe for the rest of her life. And like at least what Alexis was blamed for robbing, you're like, okay, that is illegal and that's bad. But it's like, I don't know, how fucking personally mad are you that some woman slept with some other woman's boyfriend? If you ask me point blank, is it wrong to rob Orlando Bloom? I'd say, yes, you shouldn't do that. Would I be like, and I can't live in a city where someone who would even think of doing it can live as like, who has the time to be angry on behalf of Orlando Bloom? And I will say like, again, I do think that she did it. Like, I don't care that she was like high out of her mind and she doesn't remember doing it and didn't want to be there. Like she was there and she did do it. But I do agree with her that there is a difference when you are a drug addict and you aren't conscious. I think it's a very wavy line that we like do not have a system in place to address. Like there's no nuance. I know that no matter what I do in this life, the voicemail will always be with me. The thing is, for a long time, I was embarrassed by the things that happened to me. I was embarrassed by my sexual molestation. I was embarrassed by my mom. I was embarrassed by Tess and my friends. I was embarrassed by my drug use. I was embarrassed by Pretty Wild and I was embarrassed by myself. That's what's so crazy about it is that She's not worried about the felony conviction being forever with her. It's the voicemail. Like, it's the fact that she's been publicly humiliated because of her ties to reality television, because of her appearing on reality television. 
she has been like made this villain. Well, it's the notoriety. The thing is, when you go to prison and come out, not everybody always knows. Yeah. But like the meme follows her. The meme is large. Yeah. And that is what's so scary. But she's just like working on being sober and helping and reparenting herself. And she's like, me and Evan, we're working on our relationship. And she says, last year was the worst year of my life. I hit a rock bottom. When she, when she said that, I was like, you hit another? How much lower was there to go? There was like a shooting in her neighborhood. Some of their sober living houses burnt down in the Malibu fires. And then her grandpa died. She's learning to be less codependent and just be out there and help people. She's learning how to not be ashamed of her story, but rather to own it. That's why she wrote this book. That's why she started her podcast. I wanted to create a space where women and men could celebrate the raw and radical stories of waking up to their real selves. So many people have shared with me that I helped them to finally start talking about what happened to them. Ultimately, I think that's what being woke is all about. It's not about cancel or call out culture. It's not about censorship or political correctness or somehow taking us to a place where we're afraid to speak. It's about waking up to the inequities and privileges and melting polar ice caps that make every day on this planet as absolutely miraculous as it is also fucking terrifying. It's a bell that's ringing, calling us to be our own heroes and heroines and to reach out to our brothers and sisters to hopefully help them in their own small way. Faith is not a destination. It's a starting point. It's just the part where we let go of the outcome. Of course, we must still take the action. It's that radical, unconditional love that we need to start offering ourselves and each other. That's how we heal. That's how we recover from reality. And so it is. Okay. I mean, there was a lot in that book. The fact that she is a serious drug addict, I didn't know that that was a part of her story at all. I didn't know that they were like fake rich. The portrayal of her really is like these were just these rich girls who got bored in L.A. and stole from other rich people and they're just brats and entitled. Yeah. I can't believe that that narrative persists. I can't believe that Nancy Joe, what's her fuck, didn't like see the real story that this was and instead just like leaned into the most boring fucking narrative I've ever seen. I just think it's a good reminder to be compassionate when a 19 year old girl is being publicly mocked on TV. Yeah. It's worth taking a moment and saying, should we maybe give her a bit of privacy? Or even if you do think what she did was so stupid and she sucks, like before you make memes and retweet and make more videos piling on with the exact same jokes as everyone else, maybe just say, maybe I'll sit out this conversation. Maybe this 19-year-old girl, even though I think she's wrong, doesn't need to be mocked by me specifically. The funny thing about her is like she did the time. We didn't need this internet justice of hate. Yeah. She literally went to jail. How fertile would you say this soil is? Oh, five. Five worms out of... Five worm poops. And how many worm teenies would you None! want? None. Stay sober, bitch. No worm teenies. Yeah, same. I don't really need to be anywhere near here. I'm happy I read the book. Very fertile book, but uh, we'll keep living our very separate lives. <laughs> you guys, the Patreon this week will be all about the deep dive into the Bling Ring Girls. And then, of course, if you sign up for the Patreon, in case you didn't know, you get access to the backlog of every episode we've ever done. Yeah. And we love you guys so much. So much. And we'll see you soon live. And Ashley, who do we love the most? Thank you, our Wormies, who gave us five stars. Thank you, Lid2856. You are the angel I see when I close my lids at night. Thank you, M-I-H-F-D-Y-J-L-P-P. You are one pretty picture of a reviewer my darling thank you authentic autograph there is nothing i love more than authenticity and i appreciate you to the moon and back for your beautifully authentic autograph and review thank you danielle desmet i am just so glad we met thank you sid be well oh and you be well this gorgeous review i want you to be the wellest in the game and to never fall down a well Thank you, G Friedman623. This review freed me from my mental cave. 
Thank you, On Track 1239. This is On Track to be a top review of all friggin' time. It's Brittany96. Well, thank you for this review, bitch. It's Brittany Review Bitch is what I was going for. Insomniac53, I adore you and I hope you get some rest soon. Pretty concise individual. I appreciate your concise and gorgeous review. That is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. Can't wait to chat with you next week.